Several summers ago, Kathy and I, we vacationed near Sebastian, Florida, home of the Mel Fisher Treasure Museum. Mel moved to Florida in 1963 to search for sunken treasure. He made his most famous discovery in 1985 when he found the Nuestra Sonora de Atocha, a treasure-laden Spanish galleon that was bound for Madrid when struck by a storm off the coast of Florida. The Atocha yielded the largest underwater treasure in history. Today, you can go to the Sebastian Museum and you can browse the Atocha's gold and silver and precious jewels. And in a sense, that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to comb through some treasure. For that's how we should view Paul's letter to the Ephesians. This book is a treasure chest. It's full of the spiritual riches that we discover when we're in Christ Jesus. The book begins, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, I'm glad this letter was delivered to the Ephesians by a courier. For if it had been sent by the post office, it would have caused confusion. What do you do with a letter that has two addresses? Paul writes to these believers who are in Ephesus and at the same time are in Christ. These believers were living simultaneously in two locations. Physically, they were in Ephesus, but spiritually, they were in Christ. And we also have two locations, two simultaneous addresses, one physical and one spiritual. If Paul were writing to our church today, he would pin to the saints who are in Lilburn and faithful in Christ Jesus. Paul greets these believers. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. You know, wherever you're stationed physically, you'll find that location to be limited. For example, Lilburn has no beachfront. I hate to tell you. And if you like to snow ski, sorry. Physically speaking, every location has its limitations. But not so with our spiritual address. All God's blessings come to us in Christ. Spiritually, our lives butt up against another world. We're connected by the Holy Spirit to a spiritual realm where we can draw upon the love and power and joy and peace of God, where we can experience His presence. This means the key to living the Christian life and overcoming sin is to avoid getting landlocked. Don't get tied down here to what's tangible and temporal. We need to see ourselves not just in Lilburn, but in Christ. Stay focused on who you are and what you have as a child of God. You know, if you know who you are, you'll live like it. And if you know what you have, you'll possess it and you'll use it. And so for the rest of the chapter, Paul takes us on a tour. He acquaints us with our many treasures in Christ. The treasure chest opens in verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, 
that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Here's our first blessing. We have been chosen. You know, one of the, out of the hordes of all humanity who have walked this planet from the beginning of time, do you realize God picked you to be his child? He chose you. This means that you didn't just wander into God's family. Your conversion was no fluke. God had his eye on you before the foundation of the world. Here's a real mind blower. Jesus went to the cross with you in mind. He continues in verse 5. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. Now it's true in passages like Acts chapter 10 verse 43. It says of Jesus, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. The emphasis is that our salvation depends on us choosing God. But the Bible also tells us that when we do, we discover that God chose us first. You know, someone once suggested that when we walk into heaven, we'll look up and we'll read the banner over the pearly gates that says, whosoever will may come. But after we've entered through the banner, we'll look at the other side and it reads, chosen before the foundation of the world. We have been chosen as sons of God. And then Paul adds that we've been predestined for adoption. This is a marvelous truth. If you're in Christ, God has adopted you as his son or his daughter. And you know, every adopted child has one big blessing. He or she always knows they were wanted. God wanted you. If you're adopted, you're no accident. Adoptions are never mistakes. Our inclusion into God's family wasn't forced on a reluctant father. God cherishes us, and he sacrificed to make us his own. We've been chosen for adoption. And here's why God adopted you. It's according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Did you know God chose you to show off his grace? You know, when I was saved, everyone knew there was no way a bozo like me deserved such a favor. No way did I do anything to earn God's blessing. It was given freely. You and I are proof that God is full of grace and mercy. And he continues, it was by his grace that he has made us accepted in the beloved. There is no sweeter emotion known to man than to feel acceptance, to be granted full membership. And in Christ, we have been accepted into the most exclusive club in the universe. We have been invited into the family of God. And also in him, that is in Christ, we have redemption. The word redemption means to buy back. Do you remember the story you heard as a child of the gingerbread man? Remember that story? As soon as he came off out of the oven, he popped up off of the cookie sheet and he began ta taunting the grandma who had baked him. He shouted, run, run, as fast as you can. Nobody can catch the gingerbread man. Snotty little gingerbread man. <laughs> and off he ran with grandma nipping at his heels. 
She chased him up and down the streets of the city until she found him trying to hide in the window of the bakery. She walked in and she grabbed the gingerbread man out of the window. And she was leaving with him when the baker said, Wait, ma'am, that'll be ten cents. The grandma pulled out a dime and handed it to the baker. And that's when this sweet little grandma, she held the gingerbread man to her chest and she whispered, First I made you, then I bought you. Now you're really mine. And if you listen closely this morning, that's what you'll hear the Savior say to you. First I made you, but I have now bought you. You are really mine. And note how we're redeemed. Through his blood. The shed blood of Jesus was our purchase price. You know, the background behind this idea of redemption was that of Roman slavery. A slave was never just turned loose. He had to be purchased or ransomed to be truly liberated. And for us to be fully free from the stain of sin and the slavery of Satan, the price is the sinless blood of Jesus. As the old hymn puts it, Would you be free from the burden of sin? Would you or evil a victory win? There's wonder-working power in the blood. And notice we are redeemed for the forgiveness of sins. God purchased us not to further enslave us, but to forgive us and bestow on us new family status. He's forgiven us. Understand, since God takes sin so seriously and he assigns it the penalty of death, a life had to be taken. Since blood is what fuels life, to satisfy that penalty, blood had to be shed. Thus, a sacrifice was necessary. And over the thousand plus years of the Old Testament system, tens of millions of animals were sacrificed. Given that each bull contained a gallon or two of blood and each goat a quart, A literal river of blood flowed from the temple in Jerusalem. But it took only one ultimate perfect sacrifice to end that carnage. The sinless blood of Jesus has now satisfied the penalty for us all. It is in Christ that we become fully forgiven. You know, there's a company in Michigan that has posted a notice on its bulletin board. It says, to err is human, to forgive is is company policy. And did you know forgiveness is company policy in God's kingdom? It is. Forgiveness is God's specialty. In fact, the end of verse 6 tells us the extent of his forgiveness. It's according to the riches of his grace. You know, at times I look at my bank account and I get a little depressed. My bills have exceeded my balance. But what if I were Bill Gates Jr. and my dad was paying my debts? I could breathe a sigh of relief, couldn't I? Old Bill Sr., he has more than enough to cover my past and my future debts. And realize if we're in Christ, God is our Father. And He pays our debts out of the riches of His grace. That's why there is more than enough to cover you. Trust me, no matter what you've done, God forgives us. He forgives our sins according to his riches, not our merit. 
And then verse 8 tells us that God made his grace to abound, or literally to spill over toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. In other words, this lavish grace was God's idea and no one else's. It pleased God to be this kind. Understand his heart. That in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, or when the time was right and the age is over, then he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. All history is headed for a grand climax. Everything will come together in Christ and the redeemed of all the ages will live forever with the Lord. Verse 11, in him. And I hope it's starting to sink into you. Where are our blessings found? Where is all this grace found? In him, in Christ. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Did you hear the heirs who gathered to see what the rich old man had left them? They were eager to inherit his substantial fortune, but their hopes were dashed with the will's opening line. The lawyer read, I, John Jones, of sound mind and body, spin it all. I'm afraid that's what my kids will one day hear. But don't worry, that's not going to happen to us. For God has us an inheritance. His blessings are both for now and forever. He says that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth. The gospel of your salvation. The way those first believers were saved. By faith. In other words, they trusted. is the same way the Ephesians were saved. As well as every other Christian since. We're all saved through grace. By faith in Christ. For his glory. For in whom also having believed. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And the blessings just keep rolling on. For in the ancient world, a seal was a mark of ownership. A merchant would dab his ring into some hot wax, and he would impress it onto the package that he had just purchased. And it was that impression, that was the merchant's mark. It denoted what belonged to him. And likewise, the Holy Spirit is God's mark of ownership. The Holy Spirit's power and influence in us is proof that we belong to God. Thus, those who are in Christ are people who live impacted by the Spirit of Christ. And the Holy Spirit is a big deal here. Notice verse 14 says, He is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. That word translated guarantee refers to the purchaser's earnest money. The Holy Spirit is, in essence, God's down payment. He's the foretaste of the joys of heaven. It's interesting, this Greek word, erabon, had another meaning, too. In antiquity, it referred to the dowry or to the bridal price. 
A dowry was a financial pledge given by the husband to the family of his bride-to-be. It was proof of his intentions to marry the girl and to support their daughter. And this makes for a beautiful picture when applied to our relationship with Jesus. For it is God's Spirit who is God's promise from Jesus to us. It's our assurance that he intends to return and take us as his bride. That his spirit lives in us is proof that one day we'll live with Jesus. You and I have been given tremendous blessings in Christ Jesus. But here's my question for you this morning. Are you accessing those blessings? Are you experiencing those blessings? Reminds me of Henrietta Green, or Hetty as she was called. She was the world's stingiest miser. When the woman died, her estate valued $95 million. Yet she was so tight with her money, she ate cold oatmeal each morning because she didn't want to pay to heat up her stove. The poor gal was destructively stingy. And I'm afraid the church is full of heady greens. That's right. Believers who don't draw on their blessings. So what if there is an abundance in your bank account if you never make a withdrawal? There are Christians spiritually starving while their pantry is stocked full. And in the rest of the chapter, Paul prays a prayer designed to help us take advantage of these marvelous blessings. Verse 15. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith, In the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. And notice the link here between their faith in Jesus and their love for all the saints. You know, if you have faith, you'll have love. E. Stanley Jones describes the change in his life the day he met Jesus. He says, when I was converted and rose from my knees, the first thing I wanted to do was put my arms around the world. Faith creates love. And then Paul prays, I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The Bible teaches us about God. But sadly, that's where many Christians stop. Understand this, knowing about God and knowing God are not the same. God wants us to sense his presence and be awed by his glory and to warm ourselves by the fires of his love. He wants us to experience him personally and spiritually. We need to encounter God, not just academically fill our minds with his word, but spiritually open up our hearts to his presence. There's an old hymn that reads, Beyond the sacred page, I seek thee, Lord. My spirit pants for thee, O living word. I like that. Beyond the sacred page. Paul prays that God will reveal himself to the Ephesians personally and intimately. I pray that for you. And then he also prays that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened... Not only will you know the truths of Scripture, but you'll see and have insight into how to apply them. How many people saw apples drop from trees before Isaac Newton deduced the law of gravity? 
James Watt wasn't the first person to ever see a kettle boil over. But from what he saw, he invented the steam engine. I've seen apples fall and steam rise, but that's all I saw. My understanding lacked the eyes to apply those truths in helpful and healing ways. We can't be so dense when it comes to our spiritual blessings. We need to be able to apply them. Pray that God will give you insight into how to apply the blessings that you have in Christ. And Paul lists three truths that we should definitely apply to our lives. He says that you may know what is the hope of his calling... What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand, at his right hand in the heavenly places? Now, here are the three here are three truths that Paul wants us to grasp. First, the hope of his calling. Realize you are a child of God. You are an heir of the king. Why crave the fickle attention of earthly friends or the accolades of this world when you are now somebody special in Christ Jesus? Do you know the hope of your calling? And then second, we need to realize that God considers us His inheritance, his inheritance in the saints. You know, we've mentioned that God gives to us an inheritance, but did you know that he too has an inheritance? And guess what God longs for? Oh, here's where you need to hold on to your hat, buddy. This will blow your mind. Do you know what God is longing for? You know what his inheritance is? It's you. You are his inheritance. You and I are God's treasures. To spend eternity with us is God's greatest desire. We're truly cherished by the one, the only one really who matters. And then third, Paul prays that they experience the greatness of his power. Oh, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and exalted him to heaven is now available to you and me. Thus, we need to acknowledge our weaknesses and hold our cup under God's spigot until he fills it to overflowing. Do you realize the hope of your calling, his inheritance in the saints, and the greatness of his power toward us? And then in verse 21, Paul tells us that Jesus has been exalted far above all principality and power and might and dominion. He is above the ranks of both men and angels and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus has authority over men, over angels, over time, over eternity, even over all that goes on in his church. Hey, the head of the church isn't the pastor. It's not the elders, not even the members. The head of the church is Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 is a rags-to-riches story. Do you like rags-to-riches story? We usually do. It's a rags-to-riches story, and guess who is the main character? It's you. 
It's you. This chapter describes how you and I grew up on the wrong side of the spiritual tracks. But in Christ, we have overcome impossible odds to gain a glorious future. The story begins. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Notice our problem here. (laughs) It wasn't that we were maladjusted or that we were immature or that we were just sick. No, before we came to Jesus, we were dead. Dead is a doorknob. See, death is separation. Physical death occurs when the spirit leaves the body, while spiritual death is when our spirit is separated from God. Spiritually speaking, we were stillborn. We've inherited the sin of the first man, Adam. We were born in sin and thus isolated from the life of God. And realize there are no degrees to death. A person is either dead or alive. And this is true spiritually. You're either dead or you're not. You're either in Christ or you're without Christ. But there are degrees to decay. You know, after death, the body gradually degrades and decays. Which reminds me, do you know what the great musical composer Leonard Bernstein is doing today? He's decomposing. This is funny. Because he's dead. He's decomposing, get it? That's the only joke I got this morning, so you might as well laugh at it. And likewise, spiritual decay also comes in degrees. The problem is sin corrupts. It rots away our soul. It persists in certain habits. It sours our mind. It can corrupt our hearts. Some folks are less rotten than others. But everyone without Christ, even good people, are spiritually dead. Paul continues his description of us before we came to Christ. He says, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. See, dead in Christ, cut off from God, we fell under the influence of Satan and of this wicked world. He goes on, he says, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. See, under Satan's sway, cut off from God, we seek fulfillment in sensual pleasure and in earthly gain. In other words, we look for love in all the wrong places. You know, here's the age-old mistake that all of us have made. We try to meet spiritual needs with material things and with physical thrills. And yet all these attempts only lead to more and more emptiness. Verse 4, notice these first two words. But God. Are those not the two most comforting words in all the scripture? God saw our dire plight. He couldn't allow us to have our own way and just stumble into eternity without him. But God, God crashed our party. He loves us enough to intervene in our misery. 
But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love, which he loved us. And notice this. God is rich in what you and I need most. Mercy. You know, it's been said, God's throne isn't made of marble, but of mercy. The Bible even calls his throne the mercy seat. It's comforting to know the very place where God rules is the place where rebels and sinners like us find forgiveness. This tells us a lot about God. He doesn't just lay down laws. He extends mercy. Once there was an old man, he was on his deathbed when a relative whispered, he's going to receive his reward. The dying man heard her. And he managed to utter, no, no, I'm going to receive mercy. Only a fool wants what's coming to him. (laughs) What he deserves, I want God's mercy. And Paul explains that even when we were dead in trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. God made us alive. He reconnected us with his spirit. He created spiritual life within us. He jump-started us by his Holy Spirit. You know, I picture picture God like a car thief, hot-wiring a car. Jesus took hold of God's wire. And then he took hold of my wire, burned-out wire. And he arced a spark. He did. He created a spark. He initiated a connection. Real life starts only when we become alive to God. That's why it's been said, fear not that your life will come to an end, but rather that it'll never have a beginning. Your life doesn't really start until you've been connected to God. And God has raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. You know, Air Force One is the president's private 747. has a protective thermonuclear shield. It has 19 television monitors, 85 telephones, seven laboratories. The president has his own stateroom, his own dressing room, his own office, his own dining room, all the sun chips and Biscoff cookies he can eat. In the event of nuclear war, the president can lift off on Air Force One and he can sit comfortably above it all. And similarly, God has seated you and I in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In Christ, you have all that you need to sit comfortably and peacefully even when all hell breaks loose in the circumstances of your life. You have an eternal perspective from which you can make the right calls here on earth. You know, ironically, the first step in the Christian life is not a step at all. It's a sit. The first step is to learn to sit. We've been seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Before we do anything for God, we need to see what God has done for us, who we are in Christ. Before you stand, first learn to sit will never impact our surroundings in the way God desires until we learn to rest and abide in Christ Jesus. I love verse 7. It tells us what we're going to do for all eternity in heaven. Have you ever wondered that? What you'll be doing? 
As a matter of fact, I got a list this morning, top 10 list. You know I like top 10 lists. The top 10 reasons to look forward to heaven. You ready for them? Number 10, you can begin the Lord's Prayer, Our Father, who art here. Number nine, you can get answers to the question why. Lots of whys. Number eight, in heaven, touched by an angel isn't just a TV rerun. Number seven, soul music for eternity. Man, I'm looking forward to that. Number six, real golden arches. Number five, a great view. Number four, no pain, no gain becomes no pain, no pain. Number three, when you say, oh God, you hear, what? I like that. Number two, mansions with no mortgages. And the number one reason to look forward to heaven, totally fat free. But in verse seven, we find the real number one reason to look forward to heaven. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Friends, did you know it's going to take all eternity for Jesus to explain his grace and to peel back layer after layer of his kindness toward us? It's going to take all eternity to learn of the extent of his grace. Here's a quote that's funny, but it it really conveys a sad truth. Millions long for immortality who don't know what to do with themselves on a rainy Saturday afternoon. Think about that for a minute. Eternity's going to be a long time. Will you be bored? How are you going to spend your forever? There's only one thing that will keep us mesmerized for eternity, and that is the grace and sacrifice of our Lord Jesus. Many years ago now, our family was in the car. We were heading home. I think we were coming home from church. We were discussing how God gives out rewards in eternity. My oldest, Zach, he's always been our thinker, our little theologian. Even at seven years old, he was thinking deep thoughts. He asked me, he said, Dad, if we're going to have everything in heaven, what's left for God to give us as a reward? Oh, boy. That's a good question. I was kind of stalling and groping for an answer when suddenly my silence was broken by Natalie. My sweet little daughter, she answered for me. She told her brother, Zach, God will reward us with a hug and a kiss. Could there be a greater reward? God is going to spend the ages to come showing us his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ. He's going to fill our eternity with hugs and kisses. Verse 8 For by grace you have been saved through faith. What prompted God to butt into our lives? What prompted him to save us? Make no mistake about it. It had nothing to do with our performance or our goodness or our righteous deeds or our noble heritage. Paul declares, and that none of yourselves, it is the gift of God. It has been prompted by his grace and it flows from God's heart. It is a gift that we receive. And then Paul adds, not of works, lest anyone should boast. If our salvation was wages earned, then we could brag and take credit for it. 
Rather than abolish our pride, salvation would play right into its hands. God is smarter than that. For me to be saved, I have to humble myself. I have to admit I'm a slacker. All salvation costs us is our pride. And then verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's an old saying, God's works never make us fit for God, but God does make us fit for good works. Like buying a used car, God accepts me as is, but he doesn't leave me that way. He works to refurbish my life. He goes to work turning ugliness into beauty. Paul says we are God's workmanship. I love that. That word workmanship, it means poema. It, it means poem. It's, we are his poem. We're his work of art. We are God's special creation. Our lives are the canvas on which God paints. He wants to express his thoughts and will and heart in our lives. He says, therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. Now, in the Old Testament, God distinguished Jews from Gentiles. And Gentiles were really anyone who was not a Jew. He distinguished Jews by an external physical mark called circumcision. It highlighted that Jews were a separate people group. And at that time, you Gentiles were without Christ, Paul says, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. In other words, God's salvation had been given to Israel. And since Gentiles were alienated from Jews, the Gentiles were left hopeless. It was not because God was unwilling to be gracious But outside of Israel, the Gentiles had limited access to God. In that sense, race was their barrier to grace. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. Realize, before Christ, Jews and Gentiles were about as far apart as the North American hunting club in PETA. Jews were religious and principled. Gentiles were secular and pragmatic. The two groups had little in common. But when a Jew or a Gentile receives the free gift of Jesus, suddenly that distance between them gets erased. All distinctions get abolished. They are now standing on common ground before the cross. They are brought near or literally in Greek, compressed together. Through the blood of Jesus, people are united who had little in common. And this happens today among males and females, among marrieds and singles, among blacks and whites and Hispanics, among rich and poor, among baby boomers and generation Zs, among bulldogs and yellow jackets. In Christ, our blessings overshadow all of our differences. This is the key to uniting us in Christ. Verse 14, for for he himself is our peace. 
Notice Jesus doesn't give peace. He himself is our peace. You know, you've been praying for the wrong thing. You've been praying for God to give you peace. What you need is Jesus. For it's his presence. It's knowing he's near. It's holding his hand. That's what brings about a sense of peace. Don't pray for God's peace. Pray that God will reveal to you the presence of Jesus and you'll know peace. Who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the source of friction and hostility that separated Jews and Gentiles. He's torn it down. That is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. See, the law of Moses was the culprit that kept Jews and Gentiles separated. Its customs and rituals created a different culture for Jews that made it difficult for them to relate to Gentiles and for Gentiles to relate to Jews. And the myriad of distinctions created by the law also produced a pride in the Jews and a judgmental spirit. This kept them separated. But by replacing the law with Jesus, God tore down the reasons for our division. See, the law belonged to the Jews, but Jesus belongs to anyone who puts their faith in him. The law was exclusive for Jews only, whereas Jesus is inclusive. He is for everyone who trusts in him. Sadly, today, there are a whole host of distinctions and traditions that cause people to divide. Only Jesus can transcend those wedges and make us one. He is the commonality that is greater than all of our differences. And Jesus intends, notice this, this is his strategy, to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. This is Jesus' strategy for unity. You need to understand this. See, we have missed the whole point of Christianity if the church separates into subcultures like black churches and white churches and Hispanic churches and Nigerian churches and Haitian churches and Ukrainian churches. What makes racial unity so difficult is that one group proudly holds on to its own diversity and refuses to put a higher value on our collective unity. We believe God wants us to be one, we just disagree over which one. Whereas Paul says that God is making one new man from the two. That means that all groups need to see that its diversity isn't as important as our unity. Jesus starts with the two, whatever two they happen to be. And he whittles out our differences and our diversity until we realize that little matters more than Jesus. And that we need to be united in him. This is how he puts us together. He takes the two. He doesn't make one like the other or the other like the one. He takes the two and he makes from them one new man. Verse 16. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross. Thereby putting to death the enmity. And here he's talking about unifiers here. Here's a big unifier. We all come to God through the same door. Through the cross of Jesus Christ. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. Here's another unifier. Jesus is every one of our preachers. You people talk about my preacher. Jesus is my preacher. 
He's your preacher too. He's everyone's preacher, both far and near. The gospel is one size fits all. It's every man's answer, Jew and Gentile, hipster or button down, redneck or urban. Jesus is our, everybody's preacher. And through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Here's another unifier. The same spirit of the same Father dwells in each of us. Now, therefore, since you have so much in common, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And all this means there are no second class, there are no lower tier citizenship in God's kingdom. There are no green cards or temporary visas in God's kingdom. We all travel, all heaven citizens travel on the same passport. And Jesus is building a house, mind you, an earthly embassy, an outpost for his kingdom here on earth. Verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. The apostles and prophets played a formative role in the early church. They established doctrine and practice. But Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the one load-bearing rock on which God is building his church. And many church has learned the hard way. You remove him and it all crumbles. We need to rest and trust in him. And in Christ, the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. God is building His temple on the earth today. You know, in the Old Testament, the temple in Jerusalem was God's dwelling place. But today, His Spirit hangs out in His church. He dwells among us. The Bible says that we are all living stones in the temple of God. And my prayer is that our community will see our church as the place where they can meet God. Let's pray together.